You're listening to Beyond Modern Medicine, a podcast with a mission to educate and spread awareness on holistic practices of medicine for your mental health and physical well-being. From traditional Chinese medicine to psychedelics, I'll be talking to some of the greatest minds in the fields of medicine, psychology, and more to explore the mind-body connection and how to heal beyond modern medicine. My name is Nadia Hassan, and I'm the founder of Zaya, a digital health platform with a mission to support individuals in making well-informed decisions when choosing holistic care. Hello, friends. In this episode of Beyond Modern Medicine, I've interviewed physiotherapist and mind-body medicine expert Matt Erb. Matt has worked extensively with individuals experiencing acute and chronic health conditions using an integrative model of care. He's a senior faculty member, clinical supervisor, and a clinical lead for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. He has a clinical physiotherapy practice with Simon's Physical Therapy in Tucson, Arizona that focuses on mind-body integrated care. Matt's also the founder of Embody Your Mind, and he's an instructor for the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Matt also regularly teaches for the University of Arizona Physician Training Programs. In this episode, Matt and I talk about the biopsychosocial model, how someone can identify the root cause of a chronic illness or disease. We also talk about chronic pain, whether or not it's a sensation or a perception. Matt also addresses reversing autoimmune and neurological diseases using mind-body medicine. And of course, we talk about how all of this can be applied in a clinical practice, as well as a self-care practice. So I really love this episode because I can really see and hear and feel the passion behind Matt when he speaks about mind-body medicine. And I'm really excited for all of you to be able to hear the passion and hear a lot of the wisdom and the knowledge that Matt has around this topic. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode of Transforming Chronic Illness with Mind-Body Medicine with physiotherapist Matt Erb. Okay, well, <clears throat> thank you, Nadia, and hello and welcome to everyone that's on and, and those that are watching this later. Uh, as noted, uh, I'm Matt Erb, and I'm a, a physiotherapist by training. Um, I'm in Tucson, Arizona. I'm originally from Iowa. I grew up in the Midwest, uh, spent uh, many years, uh, 16 to be exact, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, before the move uh, here to Arizona. It's happy to trade climates for those that know anything about Minnesota weather. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, appreciate uh, everything you're doing, Nadia, to uh, expand, spread the word about uh, evidence-based integrative and healthcare practices, in particular mind-body integration. Um, seeing more and more of this happening, and uh, for someone who's been doing it for much of their career, it's uh, it's exciting to be in a time where there's not just more exposure, but there's more acceptance, there's more validity, there's more scientific evidence uh, that this isn't really, for me, alternative. Uh, it's fundamental. It's fundamental to human experience. And uh, my approach is to take uh, what can sometimes be very complex science and try to reduce it uh, to essence, to messages that are clear and accessible and relatable sort of on the other side of all that complexity of the, the science and the, the headiness of it and, 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 and try to offer it not just to patients, but also to professionals who are, you know, have some sense of the need 
to move into a more whole person form of support, um, but not quite sure how to do it, not quite sure what language to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where my passion lies is, 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 is um, making that uh, integration more accessible uh, and, and expanding it as part of the ongoing transformation of healthcare. Um, sometimes we tend to think that it's it's either the biomedical model or it's this integrative, or you, you can throw around all these terms, complementary and integrative health or CAM. Or, uh, and for me, I think that non-duality, which is this both and, I don't really see them as necessarily either or. I think it's taking the best of both worlds and, and merging them into a better form of healthcare that allows people to make their own choices about which paths and which routes they want to use to address their, their health challenge, their experience, their illness, their injury. Um, so I know I threw a lot out, but that's kind of the, the gist of it. Um, I did ask about how I got into this. And, and I, I do like telling the story that um, right out of school, uh, and this is in regards to pain, but I remember uh, in my first job, uh, I was in a little clinic in Hopkins, Minnesota, and um, my desk mate, who's still a good friend, uh, her name is Molly Lawn, and she subsequently went on to get a PhD in mind-body medicine and works for the Veterans Administration in their chronic pain programs in Minneapolis. But we sat together, and we were always talking about mind-body stuff, partly because of our shared interest in yoga. And I remember one day I walked into a treatment room, and I went, oh, my gosh, you must be in a lot of pain which of course wasn't a very <laughs> nice introduction of a way of responding as I walked in the room in hindsight. But the person uh, looked at me and said, well, I don't have any pain. And looking back, this individual had some of the most um, severe physical deformities uh, from kyphosis, scoliosis, rheumatoid arthritis that I had ever seen. And I'd even had the chance in the medical clinic to see some imaging that had been done recently uh, for this person um, for some GI stuff. And they'd taken these CT scans of the abdominal region, but it happened to include images of the thoracic and lumbar spine. And there were multiple compression fractures uh, in in the the bodies of the vertebra in the thoracic and lumbar region. And here this person is saying uh, to me, I don't have any pain. I said, well, what are you here for? And she says, well, I've been falling down and I want to work on my balance. And I remember something inside of me going, oh, there goes everything I know about pain. Yeah. Because I would have thought that this person would be in a lot of pain. And that really began uh, my thinking about how much more is actually involved in the emergence of pain, the pain experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, 20 plus, you know, 21 years later, I've landed where I'm at now and I don't have the answers figured out, uh, but I've certainly devoted to understanding it as best I'm capable of at any given moment. And then offering uh, the best possible ways uh, to support people who are experiencing challenges like that. So, So maybe to give um, a little bit of a context for some of the people who are listening, what are just, just to start off, what are some of the conditions that you have been or, or work with quite frequently in the context of mind-body medicine and just the work that you do? Yeah, p- probably top on the list would be um, uh, all craniofacial-related disorders, so migraines, headaches, 
TMJ, trigeminal neuralgia, occipital neuralgia, cranial facial sort of problems. I was recruited into a, a headache specialty clinic, which was multidisciplinary. There was neurology, PTOT, and psychology that the team worked with individuals to support their their experience of chronic headaches. And so I spent a lot of years uh, really getting to know that. But I would say really, and that also includes vestibular disorders, dizziness, vertigo, um, lots of cranial nerve disorders, cranial nerve palsies, um, specialty referrals from ear, nose, and throat doctor for people with voice cough issues that that weren't addressed using the traditional models um, of care. But that's expanded to the whole of chronic pain. And right now, my my practice is predominantly working with mental health, which is less common in the U.S. than it is in some European countries where the uh, physiotherapy within psychiatry and mental health is more established across certain European countries than it is in the U.S. Uh, but I hope to continue to advance that here. And that is my practice of working with uh, a number of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals who refer people in for mind-body integrated care. They're experiencing PTSD or depression or anxiety or bipolar, and they have headaches and they have chronic pain or they have uh, fatigue, insomnia, uh, functional digestive disorders. And it's helping them connect dots and piece together so that their care isn't so split between the physical care and the the mental health care. Mm -hmm. Of course, one of our big challenges of We've been undoing hundreds of years of that type of splitting. Um, I see. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, one, one second. I'm starting to see a few people say in the chat that they can't hear something. Some people can. If you're having any issues, try to exit out and come back in or just refresh the page and let me know if that works. If not, uh, I'm not sure what else we can try and do, but Try and give that a go and let me know how that how that works out. So I want to get into really the meat of all of this. Um, there's so many things that I want to cover, but the first thing I really want to cover is what exactly is mind-body medicine? So like you said before, there's so many terms. Like you said, complementary, alternative, like integrative. There's a million terms. But what specifically is mind-body medicine? And how does it view the mind, the relationship between the mind and the body. Right. Um, in my work with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, uh, what is kind of a, a classic or standard definition is, is mind-body medicine as, as, a, as a whole, as an umbrella, focuses on complex interactions um, among or between our concepts, our sense of mind, brain, body, uh, behavior, uh, and, the, and the ways in which emotional, the, the levels of human experience, emotional, mental, social, spiritual, behavioral, interact and affect health or the emergence of health uh, or illness, if we, if we look at that as bidirectional. Mm, okay. And something that I'm really fascinated by is the biopsychosocial model. And I know some use the term, I've seen you use the term biopsychosocial spiritual model, um, which really covers the interactions between both the biological and the physiological components of illness. Can you explain what that is and 
also why you add in the spiritual component to it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The biopsychosocial model uh, dates back uh, to the seventies by George Engel. And he proposed that model as sort of an alternative or an evolution of the existing or prevailing biomedical paradigm to not just focus on what was perceived to be biological factors in health, but how psychological and social factors informed that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Challenge with it is that unto itself, without foundational shifts in the base of how we perceive healthcare, that idea often gets compartmentalized into three different things and the way that clinicians try to actually support people at that level is often um, still separate topics, like it's throwing in something, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the base model hasn't really changed. And the, the spiritual piece um, is in the recognition of, uh, of that which people at an individual level believe, their individual beliefs about purpose and meaning to life and existence Um, sometimes that's religious for people. Sometimes it's not, but it's helping people with that level. And so naming that, uh, my exposure to that comes from my work and involvement with my colleagues in yoga therapy, where, you know, yoga in its whole form and not just the the physical form, the asana form is a series of, of, of limbs, different facets and, one of my mentors, Matthew Taylor, uh, describes it as a psycho-spiritual technology, that yoga mm-hmm. is a psycho-spiritual technology of sorts. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my colleagues started uh, adding in the word spiritual to say this is more complete. Yeah. Now, in, in, a, in an effort that will be coming out this uh, spring, we I tried, in, in, along with some others, to suggest that the word integral or integrative can be a single word that encompasses the entirety of all of that. Yeah. Not to imply specialness, because my hope is that the label eventually wouldn't be needed if Mm. if the the care models are able to continue to evolve, adapt, and transform towards a more uh, holistic or whole lens. Um, So that's kind of where I I see it moving is is using that word and then – not, not wanting to apply better than or specialness or let it bolster, uh, you know, a person's ego. Oh, I'm an integrative. I think it's used to acknowledge to people. I want to help address the whole of your experience and not just reduce, overly reduce. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually that that might actually fall away as we combine biopsychosocial spiritual all together into a more, foundational approach yeah so would you say if you were to if you were to categorize the biopsychosocial model into one of these terms would it be integrative medicine body integrative yeah yeah we actually explore all the derivatives of integrated integrative integral Mm -hmm. and they all derive from the root word of integral which implies um, that the sum of parts is the whole. Mm. It's, it's taking that lens. And, and with biopsychosocial alone, we can look at the idea 
And th this is often a, a challenge to our thinking processes, but I don't separate out psychological from biological. Yeah. yeah. I use the term psychophysiology and I'm very careful about the words I use because I'm wanting to not imply or reinforce inadvertently what's already deeply embedded, implicit in our unconscious that the mind is somehow separate from what's happening in the physical body. Mm. We've split aside the psychosocial realities of our life from what's manifest in the body. Um, and we can talk a little bit, perhaps we'll get to this about um, why that might be in the, in the, the challenges of that. But that psychology itself is embedded in physiological correlates. You know, there's a neurology to it. There's a chemistry to it. There's a physiology to our psychological experiences. Oh, yes. yes. And the yes. same would be true for the environment. So your social environment, your physical environment carries biological implications, direct physiological, biological impact. Mm -hmm. um, there's one study that was done in, uh, I don't remember the reference, but I, I remember reading about it. And I think it was somewhere in Southern California where they, they took people with a uh, major depressive disorder and they literally relocated them into new living environment, socioeconomic and, and living environment. They provided them a different and a large percentage of them, the, the depression resolved and main and, and stayed resolved as long as the um, uh, support was sustained for the new living environment. Mm. We tend to treat depression as somehow an individual moral failing or a weakness, or it's it's solely an individual thing. But when we think about that, that, oh my gosh, what if the environment or the environments that we're living and working in are the major determinant? It then helps remove some of the sense of blame or shame or causality to the experience. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean I may not have some personal work to do or some personal responsibility to uh, cultivate, mm -hmm. but it reminds us that, you know, that we're not solely it helps to undermine the blame, shame that, that can come, the stigma that can come about uh, when people are experiencing different conditions to think, oh, my gosh, there's so much more here that's influencing my health. And I'm not just solely responsible for it. Yeah. In speaking to the biopsychosocial model, do you do you believe that they're um, that each are equally each have an equally weighted importance on the person. So do you think that maybe one is more important than the other, or do you think that they're all equally important and that all of them should be addressed in order to have this sort of whole person um, care approach? I think this is where individualism actually is a good thing. Individuality rules. It's so unique to each person. What that recipe, that soup of ingredients that contributed to the emergence of the health issue or challenge or problem actually is. It can be as simple as I have a piece of glass in my foot. Let's remove it. Oh, that feels much better. Mm -hmm. There is a role in some cases for the fix it sort of tendency that we always hope for, that there's a quick, easy fix. Something can be done for me or to me that removes this pain or this challenge. The vast majority of health manifestations are far more complex than that. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so it's in, in one case, it might be largely that the person's lifestyle, personal lifestyle medicine is optimal and they still have major health challenges. So they have everything in place and it is uh, the environment. Mm-hmm. So is, is there a way to support people? in the environment. And if we can't, how can I support people's relationship to the fact that this is my present experience? Yeah. Yeah. Um, For others, you know, it might be more uh, nutritional. Um, Some people need to do a greater amount of of individual psychological work, you know, with my own uh, health history with um, uh, having chronic headaches and migraines myself, um, I have no doubt that my early life experiences of trauma, uh, high stress exposure in, in developmental times was a key informant in that. And I'm a huge personal advocate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm at a point in my life where I, I, I don't really experience any sense of, of significant shame around. Uh, I, I value psychotherapy. I, I, I like to continue to do person, the processing out of my personal unconscious, my life experience towards resolution, towards healing, towards transformation. And I do think for some people that that might be a greater emphasis. Mm-hmm. But it's for me to decide, it's for me to be a guide to help each person decide where do you think the most emphasis is needed? Mm-hmm. There's a significant mismatch because we do get a lot, as a physical therapist, we get a lot of individuals who hope for, want, naturally, it's not a weakness, we want that physical fix. We want a manipulation or a massage or a myofascial release that will somehow take it away. And so sometimes there's a mismatch between what I want, you know, I, I, and what is actually needed. We, we need to shift that emphasis and weight it more towards psychosocial factors. Mm-hmm. And that's a, has to be a collaborative um, process explored between two people in relationship and that, that's where the healthcare relationship comes in. That foundation of the relational space is so important to even be able to begin to do that. Yeah. 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 What, I would hear your thoughts on the, how conventional medicine approaches chronic illness and the difference between conventional medicine and mind-body medicine and how, one can support the other and the other can support, you know, how they different, how they can basically support in different ways. Like what are your thoughts on, on that? I I think that the biomedical model is most effective for acute injury, acute trauma. Mm -hmm. um, than it is for chronic health issues. And I think that the attempt, you know, I I see the biomedical model as being more weighted towards reduction of causality. It's Mm -hmm. trying to to identify a a label for causality. Uh, So when you look at the extent of testing that's done um, and also rooted in fix it, this fix it paradigm that if, if something's broken, let's fix it. And then we look at the fixes that are thrown at what's broken and they also are deployed um, in a way that is reduced from the, the, the reality of causality. 
um, there's a, there's a paper out. His name was is Low L O W, and it's a dispositional theory of causation. And it's that there are dispositions in place. There are ingredients that we each carry that may be priming or predisposing. And so you get this recipe in this mix. Mm-hmm. I think biomedical tends to try to, you know, it's, it's like back pain is a good example. I, I, I have someone right now who is uh, getting interventional pain management, you know, frequent injections, uh, tissue injections. And that supposes that the problem is solely localized in the area that we're injected. But when you really think of the living system and the complexity that might have informed that setup, we've missed the vastness that might have informed it. And we're just when we're reinforcing the idea, something's wrong right there. And that's the only thing that's wrong. So let's keep injecting it. And that doesn't make sense to me when, when I look at it from the lens of complexity. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is, 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 is a key distinction. Uh, I don't want to suggest that reduction is bad because sometimes we do work down a level. Like I see integrative thinking as maybe we do need to step down a level and work more at the physical level on this particular situation. And sometimes we need to go up into a greater level of complexity to look at the psychosocial or even spiritual factors if that's within the person's realm of a belief that there are other determinants to the manifestation of their health that could be explored. How can people really get to understand what those determinants are? Like what, like I think of the root cause of disease. This is something that frequently crosses my mind and I'm constantly trying to get to the root cause of my own illness. So um, I have endometriosis and that's something that I've always viewed as really coming from a place of trauma, you know, uh, suppressed emotions and just basically a buildup as well as a few other things that have happened, like just biologically in the body. But basically I've realized that there's so many different components that have contributed to my condition. Um, but it really took time for me to really try and understand that. And even, even now it's just like, how am I supposed to really know that part of my, part of my condition was, manifested because of some sort of trauma that happened in my life. How can people really get to understanding where their uh, disease came from? And then I have a question after that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, your experience, I think, presents a good example um, that we do know that adverse childhood experiences, for example, the ACEs research as a whole, Mm -hmm is associated with marked increased risk for a wide range of health challenges across the lifetime. Uh, And that can include trauma. Uh, I believe trauma at any age can can set in motion. We can come back to what the research says that toxic stress, high or sustained or unmitigated allostatic load, that's the buildup of stress across time. is something that is associated with chronic illness and disease. So at the foundation, how is the, the, the bio, how are the biological systems regulating themselves? You know, this is the autonomic nervous system, the chronic pervasive high 
level of activation or dysregulation. I shouldn't say it's always high level, but it's not an optimum level of of management of, of demand and arousal versus rest, that balance. Mm-hmm. We know that that's a factor. Uh, we know that chronic disease can develop due to both genetics, but epigenetics. So we have a, we do all have a genome that may predispose us to certain conditions, but then as that interacts with the environment, our experience, our social environment, our physical environment, that's like turning genes on and off. We also know from the ACEs research that when we've had stressful or traumatic experiences earlier in life, it does influence naturally. This is totally normal how we cope. So the adoption of adaptive coping tendencies such as the foods that I eat or what I eat or how much I eat, substance use, um, uh, isolation, introversion, isolation, avoidance of social interactions. So there's different pathways. There's the stress pathway, neuroendocrine, hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal, all this sort of mind-body science. You have the epigenetic influences from experience, and that can go the other way. We know that there are positive childhood experiences that can counteract the potentially adverse effects of stress and adversity and trauma in childhood and go in the exact opposite direction. So epigenetic Mm -hmm. can work in either direction. Mm -hmm. And then we have the maladaptive coping route. Now, what I want to say about this is that we do have the risk of and I see this happening a lot. Trauma-informed care is extremely important, but we do actually run the risk of over-assigning the causality of our own health experience just to trauma. And then we also miss the the integrative lens of all the other variables that might be in the recipe. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I got off topic. I think I might have, but no, no, keep going. <laughs> I'm soaking it all up. <laughs> um, so I guess it's like so. At that point, where do you start? I mean, there's because there's these different factors that can come into play. It's like, well, then where do you start when you're wanting to enter into a state of healing, of transformation? Do you have to start with the psychological factors so addressing like your psychological needs or is it the physiological that you uh that you address first um and and how do you know if the root cause could be either trauma or it could be something um something biologically how do you know which one you need to do first do you do both like what is that like how how is somebody supposed to determine that like what sort of treatment protocol they should they should start Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I see someone just uh, Dana Lee posted address together holistic. Well, that I think is my approach that I begin to address all of it simultaneously by focusing on the whole of the person. I want to establish mm-hmm. a relationship that allows me to be attuned and, and form a sense of what is this person's experience like mm-hmm. and what do you believe are potential contributing factors. How are you making sense out of this experience? And when I and, and then I would listen deeply to what those answers are to begin to get a sense of 
So I always start with where that individual um, sense is coming from. Um, the other thing that I do do pretty uniformly, because I do believe that at, at, at the biological substrate, um, dysregulation, uh, we talk a lot in mind-body medicine about the autonomic nervous system, which is healthy on both sides, sympathetic gas pedal, parasympathetic brake pedal. It regulates our physiological response to demand and returns us back to homeostasis when demand has passed. Mm -hmm. And it's an endless combinations of activation. Mm -hmm. I tend to begin to cue in at the physiological level to those foundations. So for example, there's a lot of research on heart rate variability as a biomarker. We can do simple recordings of people's heart rate variability to begin to get a little bit of a, a window into the physiological resilience of this autonomic regulatory system, the efficiency of it. And so I do a lot of work with foundational mind-body skills that have been shown to improve those biological underpinnings that help to mitigate stress, the stress response that help to improve our ability to actively contribute to the self-regulation of our stress experience. Um, so I do a lot of that and I don't, I don't separate that out, you know, from psychological factors, uh, but the extent to which um, individual psychological content kind of comes in, um, that's through permission. Mm. Um, I, I often say, even when I'm exploring history, I say, you know, I, I just want to get a little glimpse of, of what you, you're, you have experienced, what your nervous system has been through. And I'm not making any assumptions as to the relevance of any of this at this point in time. It just gives me a little bit of a sense. And I say, and I want to approach this from a let's look back but not stare. I'm not here to do analysis of this content, and I'm not here to make assumptions about whether it's relevant or not. But I want to get a feel because we do know from the research that, for example, exposure to adversity in childhood may be a predisposing factor. And that doesn't mean we're going to spend our time doing a regressive analysis of your childhood. just want to get a sense for, you know, how much stress informed the development of your nervous system. So you can kind of hear, hear a bit of a tone in how I do that because it's vital that, that I, I see the biological underpinnings of safety, nurturance, and empowerment. And I do believe that there's biological correlates to these ideas of safety nurturance and empowerment that that the way that I work is attuned to to am, am I working with this person and with myself simultaneously in a way that is carries potential to support those underpinnings um, so again I think I'm getting a little off from the question but um, yeah mm -hmm. So something that I want to speak to is chronic pain specifically. Um, so one question that I wanted to ask you is, is pain a sensation or a perception? Um, yeah. What is the meaning behind chronic pain? Um, this is a real rabbit hole. And <laughs> Pages and pages and pages of threads on social media of people 
arguing and debating and discussing and some contemplatively, some curiously, some with strongly reified beliefs. Um, so it's a real rabbit hole. Um, I really appreciate there's a, a gentleman in um, somewhere in Australia, um, uh, John Quintner, and he and some colleagues wrote a paper and they said pain is an aporia. And that means an irresolvable um, theory. Mm. It, 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 I, I prefer the word mysterianism as a philosophy. There's all these neuro philosophies and mysteria, mysterianism is we don't really know. For me personally, pain is a physical experience. It's embodied. It's a sensation. I do believe that while focusing on it as a sensation, that each person's experience of sensation is highly unique and we can use the word perception. Mm -hmm. Like a person will perceive bodily sensations in very unique and different ways. So for me, there's a both and, but I, I like to keep it focused on it's a, it's a somatic embodied physical sensation it's you know it's a sensory experience um and build from there because some of the tendency uh in the brain centric view of pain it can lead people to think it is all in the head including that say it's all in the brain mm -hmm. some of the colleagues that i follow they say you know the brain is is necessary but not sufficient for pain so at the physical level you know we need a brain to be able to experience pain yeah. But it's not necessarily sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have seen podcasts where that question is the entire hour or two hours, you know, discussion between people. Um, and uh, what I want to do is, is um, work with the person to try to best understand what their experience is to the best of my capability and support that experience. Um, and that's where I, I, I bring in a lot of, it is a foundation acceptance and commitment therapy. I know I'm changing topic a little bit, but I see that the six core messages uh, act act acceptance and commitment therapy has defined six, what might be considered core dynamics in human experience mm -hmm. that may contribute to our suffering, to our experience of suffering and examples are experiential avoidance. Oh, I can't have this experience, make mm -hmm. it go away, fix it. Yeah. This is unwelcome. On the flip side of that, wisdom teaching say our tendency to say, oh, this feels good. More of this, please. Our attachment to the feel good is equally a problem. Um, so you, I won't go through all of them, but you have the six core challenges that working with those can help improve. Transform might be a better way. Uh, people's relationship to their individual experience of pain, whatever that is, you know, since mm -hmm. I can't know what it is for that person, mm -hmm. their relationship to the sensation of pain, I might say. Okay. Okay. I, I want to, um, that all of this is really, really interesting. Um, I want to be able to, check in on some of the things that people are saying in the chat. We have a lot of people just commenting and talking about their experiences and their diagnoses. I don't know if you're able to see this as well. Um, 
I'm trying to find a question that someone was asking. Where is it? I guess like the other question is, um, where is it? So, I mean, like talking about pain, like what is, like how should we be speaking about our pain? How should we be addressing our pain? Um, there's an app that I've used that really talks about the, the more of like the neuroscience behind um, how to address your pain and how you can basically change your language and use different sort of meditations to address managing um, your, your pain symptoms. Um, how important and how, uh, I guess, how useful is that? Or how, like, what is really going on in the body when we're able to change the way that we speak about our condition? And is that really effective? I think it's important, this again, in terms of uh, seeking solutions um, if we approach the idea that cognitive behavioral shifts, so looking closely at what, what my mind is telling me about this pain, so I look, I'm able to look at those thoughts and I'm able to change my relationship to the thoughts. Mm -hmm. so go, oh, isn't that, I always often say, let's just imagine we take that thought and throw it up on the ticker at the bottom of the television screen. Yeah. You go, oh, interesting. I wonder why the mind is 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 formulating that thought. So I, it's it's appraisal. So this is more of a cognitive behavior. I think it's important, and I also think that if we were to infer to people that changing their relationship to their thoughts and act, you don't mm -hmm. change the thought at all. You don't try to change the thought or create a new thought. You accept the thought and not get hooked or fused by it. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy some of the earlier versions of it, they would say, you know, work with changing that thought or work with the formulation of uh, positive thoughts or affirmations sort of thing. But that can also, re for some that works really well, for others that becomes a reinforcement of the avoidance, right? I'm avoiding the actual experience of distress, of discomfort, of emotion, uh, of the thought. So I, I do think that working at the cognitive level is important, but it looks different for each person um, as to how that shapes up. Some use apps. There are, I have a, a colleague who, who researches the use of like apps for different health conditions. Um, and, and so for some that might be very appealing. It might be very practical. Other people I think would really need to do the work within an attuned relationship. If it's accessible, if it's possible, you know, to work with a process oriented form of rehabilitation, it's not just, Oh, you get six visits, but let's establish a relationship here and, and see what and work on this over time yeah. sort of thing. So um, I know I jumped around a little bit from the cognitive piece, but my point is not, not wanting to set up the idea that any one facet of this is going to be the the cure all and, mm -hmm. and 
none of it is a one and done either. Most of this mm-hmm. is process oriented, which in mind body medicine, we say it's slow, but powerful medicine. Mm-hmm. It's potentially powerful, but it's often slow. So if I have realistic expectations out of the start and I value the time that I spend practicing a mind body skill, such as guided imagery mm-hmm. or a, a meditation practice or yoga, independent of an attachment that this is going to fix and take the problem away, but I innately value the practice. I think that that naming that and and helping people understand that shift um, can set up a greater potential of of cumulative benefit over time uh, by staying with it and realizing this is a process. It's not just a destination that I'm going to arrive at my pain or whatever my condition is, is going to suddenly be gone. Yeah. Oh, that's so incredibly important. I, and I think that there's, I really want to talk on, speak to what are these different exercises that, um, that people can start using and integrating into, into their lives. Um, but before we do that, I know we have 10 minutes left and I really want to make some, uh, spend some time for a Q and a. So, Everyone, if you have a question, pop it into the chat. Um, and then I actually, my laptop is actually about to die. Um, I, it started with 100% and all of a sudden it's down. So I'm going to quickly grab that. And in the meantime, everyone ask your questions and I'll come back and we'll take a look at those. Yeah. And while you're doing that, I'll just answer one thing here. I see someone asked about what are the other uh, challenges that ACT defines tendencies that we carry. Um, if you like, uh, there's um, a YouTube channel called Health Flicks, uh, and that was launched uh, from the yoga community uh, in response to COVID to offer, this is back in March last year, March and April, uh, to offer a series of talks to support people because a lot of people were transitioning to lots of time at home. And and I gave a, a presentation on embodied acceptance and commitment therapy. And I paralleled the ACT model to yoga, uh, to the yoga teachings. And so all six of them are defined there, along with very practical, uh, experiential examples of how to work with those. So that's a good resource if you'd like to look into that further. Okay. So, you know, actually, one of the other questions that I really wanted to ask you is, um, is it possible to be able to reverse the effects of autoimmune diseases and other illnesses through mind-body medicine? So that's something we didn't really talk about is like, what are these different modalities in mind-body medicine? Um, and as well as tools and different perspectives that can be used. But first addressing the the first question is, is it possible to reverse some of these conditions that are considered chronic, terminal, um, et cetera? It is, but I do not know what the recipe, the exact recipe is for any one person for that. The possibility of that, an actual reversal to emerge. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, if we have a chronic health condition, to try to approach it with realistic expectations. This doesn't mean I abandon expectations that there's the possibility of improvement or remission. Uh, we know that conditions can re- uh, go into remission. Uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences undertook a massive study back in the 90s, I think, and they have a some 90 or 100,000 health records of people who had spontaneous remission of severe, often terminal conditions. 
and they interviewed as many of them as they could to find out what they had attributed their remission to. And oftentimes, interestingly enough, it was psycho-spiritual dynamics in their life. Mm -hmm. So that making space for the possibility of, of, of those realities, but also helping people have, I, I work very hard to not uh, create false hope or exaggerated claims, to be very grounded in what is right now. And how can I best relate to my condition right now? Having said that, and I see one of the people, Penny here, uh, said, can this be used in neurological diseases such as MS? And you're asking about chronic autoimmune, severe autoimmune. Uh, there's a researcher at the University of Iowa. Um, oh, what is her name? The uh, Anyway, she, she had MS. She had pretty severe MS. She completely reversed her disease. She, she apparently has no longer has signs of it. And she began re researching the approaches. And a lot of it is epigenetic through diet, dietary mod modification along with other lifestyle factors, mind-body skills. I think that the approach needs to be fairly comprehensive so that people are addressing psychosocial and stress factors. They're addressing nutritional factors, yeah. uh, support for healthy relationships, uh, movement and exercise, um, integrating their personal spiritual practices. So I don't think it is, is any one factor, but I, I do, I, and I've seen cases, Dr. Howard Schubiner, who founded the, or does a lot of research on emotional awareness and expression therapy and the Unlearn Your Pain program. He has had people who've had report complete remission of chronic pain. But I've also known people who've gone through programs like that who didn't have any effect or who had partial effect. Uh, and the randomized controlled trials on it, they're showing statistically significant improvement. So it's definitely on to something um, that it's possible for the reversal. But we have to be very careful that we're not uh, suggesting that that will happen for everyone because there are hidden determinants to everyone's health, some of which may not be knowable. And so that's where we come back to act in, in my relationship to my health and living forward in the service of my values, despite the fact that I have this passenger of MS or chronic pain or whatever it is on my bus, I still have my GPS and I have my hands on the wheel and I know why I'm driving. Mm. That's one of the metaphors in ACT. So it's a long answer to the question, but. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so difficult, especially for allopathic um, doctors to be able to know if it's safe enough to integrate these sort of practices and for their patients because of, like you said, there's so many different determinants when somebody can use something might work for one person, but it might not work for another person. And the lack of evidence of that, um, it makes it very difficult for a lot of these conventional medicine practitioners to be able to confidently um, refer their patients to some of these different uh, modalities and methods. I, how can how can how can doctors how can these conventional practitioners start to guide their patients toward this? Like, how can they start to really integrate this into their practice um, when it comes to you know a lack of evidence on some of these therapies? Yeah, that is. Uh... Well, let me start by saying in the U.S., I think that that has come along a lot more and a lot further 
than some other places in the world. Integrative medicine is a board certifiable subspecialty now. Um, They do work very hard to keep it uh, academic oriented, uh, evidence-based or evident and or evidence informed. Your question for me speaks into the larger. It's another rabbit hole that we, when we look at risk assessment and we really look at the data on the bio, many of the biomedical practices, ironically, that are supposedly evidence-based, we have to be able to challenge ourselves to look at the risk profile of what the biomedical intervention is. If the doctor saying, I'm not sure if that's safe for you to go do this alternative or complementary or integrative approach, I have to really look at where does that come from? And is, is, is that true? relative to what the biomedical solutions, proposed solution or offerings are. Um, We know that there's all kinds of challenges with evidence, the quality of evidence, the transformation of evidence. Um, In this book we have coming out, we put a a heavily referenced, but very short condensed view of evidence-based medicine, evidence-informed medicine, Um, how that looks for each provider is going to be very different based on their level of training and where they're at and their own individual beliefs. You know, some people have strong beliefs against uh, integrative practices, but they don't have any real understanding of where the movement of integrative medicine is actually at at this point in time at the academic level and at the research level. I see that a lot where people have this very strong, oh, that's all snake oil. Yeah, but I don't think that they're immersed in it in a way that really understands uh, where it, it currently stands. Yeah, yeah, and it, as I've noticed at least in the U.S., there there are a lot more organizations and universities that are coming together to really push this integrative medicine movement. Um, I'm seeing that a lot more in the U.S. than in Europe. Um, I'm in Berlin, and integrative medicine is not even really a term that I've seen around here. Um, But it's good to know that it's slowly making its way into the U.S. and that there's all these different educational programs that are being um, created for a lot of the the medical doctors out there. So it's really inspiring to at least know that that is happening. Yeah, and Um, I've seen more of that sort of, be careful with this word, but perhaps overly strong or reified criticism of integrated medicine. I have seen it more from um, from some European sources, but I think that's because it's they're not as in, in, embedded in the academic world of integrative medicine here. Yeah. So true. That's so true. Hmm, I've noticed that actually as well. Um, so there's someone asked a question, a few questions. Uh, she said, "In clinical practice, how do you best explain to a patient struggling to understand the nature of chronic pain?" because they are so used to thinking pain equals structural damage that their beliefs could be influencing their pain. Um, Yeah. That's just one question. How I would approach that will look very, very different with each person based on my read of where they're at and their understanding of pain. I think the science is a way in. I, I, I remind people that, you know, this, ouch, Trans, you know, people think it's a single transmission line, but it's bi-directional, which means that there is transmission line back down the spinal cord to the body. Um, 
that those downward transmission lines are exceptionally powerful. They're driven by our body's endorphins, our natural endorphins. And so if the, um, the cognitive emotional response uh, is one of, oh, crap, shit, this is terrible. I'm not going to be able to ever work again. Versus this sucks. This is really painful. And I also know I can get help and that my body's strong and can recover. That they have either facilitatory or inhibitory call it bottom-up, top-down sort of pathways. Sometimes just explaining something as basic as that. Uh, top-down inhibition. That the, the, the regions of the brain that are associated with conscious attention, self-referential, self-aware, uh, and cognitive processes are wired such that they can uh, release inhibitory pathways and chemicals downward that inhibit or suppress the ascending sensory information, the nociceptive information. So I don't know if that helps uh, the question, but that's just one of many examples of how I might approach that. Mm -hmm. And then I guess finally, the last question really um, is how can all of this be applied in a self-care practice? What are some of the tools and these exercises and things that people can really take home after this event and start to use in their, in their life? Um, I would invite each person listening to ask themselves, you know, where, uh, if I, if I think of entry points into myself as a living system, spiritual, cognitive, men and mental, emotional, physical, and so the physical realm of movement and practices, physical tasks, um, whatever the level, nutritional, uh, environmental, social, what, what areas in my life feel out of balance to me? Mm -hmm. um, that you answer that question yourself from, from that type of invitation. Mm -hmm. I will say I put in a plug all the time for basic mind-body medicine. You know, I use uh, breathing practices, meditation practices, body awareness, uh, guided imagery. I use these skills daily on top of my physical movement practices they're just embedded into my life. So I do put in a plug. I, I, I think that it's good health practice in general to offer dedicated time to practices that we know have potential to help improve the physiological regulatory systems. Because uh, a lot of us are up, up here, you know, we're on go, 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 do, 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 gas pedal. You know, there's no in between the stop or go, you know, so we're, it's, it's the slow sort of message. I use a lot of the mind-body practices uh, as a general. I, I, I think they're appropriate for everyone as, as part of good health practice. Yeah, yeah. It all starts with self-awareness. Um, well, thank you so much. Honestly, this has been incredible. I wish I could keep going in this discussion with you, and I think everyone else can as well. Um, so someone asked if we can get a list of resources discussed in apps. Yes, I will be so in this uh, in the email that I'll send out next week, which will also include the replay of this event. I'll also include a list of resources and some of the things that we mentioned. Um, and um, finally, also the so as I said before, um, 
if you guys ever have any questions, feel free to email me at Nadia at Zayamed.com. And Matt, also, I put your links as well in the profile and in the bio. It's everywhere. So um, if you guys are interested in that, you can take a look at his profile, I believe, on this platform. If not, it should be in your ticket. Um, and if anything, Matt, how can people contact you? Yeah, you can use uh, embodyyourmind at gmail.com. And I don't know if it's possible if there were, I know there were quite a few comments and questions. If there's any of them that I can answer, they could be compiled. Yeah. Um, I can write short answers um, at some point and they could, I don't know if you do that typically, um, but I'm yeah. happy to answer those. Yeah, yeah, I, I do it. Um, that's perfect. Okay, great. I'll definitely keep track of that because there were a lot of questions that I do want to also make sure those get addressed. All right, then. Thank you so much for everybody who overstayed. I know we went past five minutes, but I really appreciate you joining us. And make sure to sign up to the workshop if you're interested in that. And if you are located in Berlin, um, Zaya, so my company, we will be launching, as I said, an integrative medicine booking platform where you can book sessions and find trustworthy integrative and mind-body medicine experts located in Berlin. We will be expanding and scaling to Europe as well as the UK. Um, but if you're interested in that, make sure to check out our website and you can join the wait list for that. Um, other than that, thank you so much, everybody. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your morning, afternoon, evening, night, wherever you're from. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, everyone. All right, that was Transforming Chronic Illness with Mind Body Medicine with our guest speaker, Matt Erb. If you'd like to learn more about Matt, you can go to his website at embodyyourmind.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Zaya and what we're doing with our soon to launch booking platform, you can visit our website at zayamed.com. That's Z A Y A M E D.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>